0: Yeah, we're like an AFL football team in, like, February. You know, everyone's fit, everyone's firing, you know. Haven't played a game, but, geez, we feel good.
1: Welcome back to Half-Wheel Studios. We are back. Scotty Barrow, you are joining me again. Great to hear from you, my friend.
0: Yeah, for sure. I'm looking forward to this because I had a look back through the annals of Half Will and Podcast, the entire library, encyclopedic it is, and the last two episodes have been those interviews with Tommy, but before that, it was like November 18 or something. Yeah. So, you know, we've been in a good paddock, haven't we?
1: We have been in a good paddock. we are still, well... You'd say we're probably not quite race weight at the minute, but that's okay. Um we we'll
0: be better for the run?
1: Well, I would have thought so. We've managed to catch, and there's been a little bit of racing in that time. So, mm. you know, whilst we're not race weight, I feel mm. we're probably more knowledgeable, if that's possible, because, mm. you know, across most things in the world of cycling.
0: Yeah, we're like an AFL football team in, like, February. You know, everyone's fit. Everyone's firing, you know. Haven't played a game, but geez, we feel good. We're yeah, confident.
1: Gee, gee, they look good this month. Scotty, you mentioned um, our interview with Tommy, which was just released uh, a short time ago. Getting some really good reviews. And, and if you, just to the listeners out there, if you get a chance to get on and give it a review, we'd love it. But yeah, getting some, uh, a good response from what, as we've already mentioned, was a great opportunity for us to sit down and talk with Tommy about his cycling career.
0: Yeah, it's always nice when what you think is really good shit is also seen by others to be really good shit as well, yeah. and that's what that's the feedback we've been getting. And also, like you say, you you ask for the ratings in or for people to get on and rate us. Yeah. That's important because that increases the chances of us being found by new listeners. Yeah. Apart from you know direct referrals, yeah, because that'll bump us up the charts and we'll be you know it's almost like being on the first page of Google.
1: Exactly right. So when people want to have a listen to a cycling podcast, and you know they don't want the mundane sort of real wanky type setups, imagine, they want real backslappers, almost not quite a tin pot sort of setup, but pretty fucking close to it. Um,
0: imagine like yeah, just two blokes talking like that would be so boring. Two blokes talking, <laughs> thinking they're funny, you know, like they, those are shit podcasts. Those ones, yeah, that's yeah. not. We're we're different than that. We're
1: about more than that. We're bringing it to the people. Scotty, I mentioned at the top that there's been a lot going on since we mm. last recorded one of these types of podcasts. Yep. There's been some unbelievable racing, but not all on the road either. So we had a bit of a chat about this and thought our best angle might be to pick out some of our favourite moments so far for 2021. Did you manage to get a bit of a collection up? Because I've got a couple that I think have found a place in my heart. Um, yeah. And look, there could be some crossover there too.
0: Yeah, I um picked a few out too. And even as I'm saying this, I'm thinking, well, you know, this is not the most thoroughly researched, accurate, you know, best of. This is not like a universally accepted best of highlights for the season. This is just the ones that we can remember. And we're not going to do much more research than that. So if you uh, don't like it, well, just view us like two big blokes down the pub boasting. We yeah, don't want to hear about it.
1: Well said, because we pride ourselves on our lack of research. As you said, if you want research you know, tap into some learned mm. pricks who are sitting there, you know, reading from a book. That's not what we That's
0: do. right. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, I know where you were going with that in terms of other sports and right back. I'm assuming I know what it is. So what was your first highlight for this well, season?
1: Well, I think I speak on behalf of not only you, but most cycling fans that I've come across and that know. Cyclocross has captured the imagination of the world seemingly. It seems like it's a new sport, but – Geez, we were treated to some absolutely blistering racing and competitive arch rivals coming together, like they do on the road, the two Vans and also Tom Peacock. The cyclocross season was one, a gift that kept on giving.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The leading, if you like, the leading races or the season races before the Worlds, you know, they were all having a crack, weren't they? Um, the Vans were sharing a few. Yeah, you Vanderpol know, um Vanderpool probably won the most and then Van Art and then I think Peacock might have got one or one or two, and he was always on the podium. So it was, um, yeah, those guys were having a really good crack. And then we got to the worlds. Yeah,
1: the worlds was um, the worlds was worthy of the worlds, wasn't it? Like, I mean, it, we're talking about the course. The field was sensational as well. To think back on that beach setting, degrees-wise, it might have been no more than two or three degrees on tipping. Um, because, mm. as you recall, and I think I mentioned it in Tommy's um, interview, Van Art. Uh, had a massive big booger hanging out of his nose and he just, so, you know, from that perspective, he was racing under duress. That um, was huge, Scotty, that Worlds. Mm.
0: And that peak moment for me and that Worlds, because the course, like you say, was a regular sort of cyclocross course on grass and bits of road and whatever. And then, of course, it was sitting right on the edge of a beach. And so they rode onto the beach multiple sort of times and, um, the bit where you had Vanderpoel and Van Art, you know, almost like a two up break, and they're looking, they're riding along the beach on the hardest sand they could find. And that hardest sand just so happened to be where waves were lapping over <laughs> their <me>. rear derailers, <laughs> wa- lapping over their rear derailers. And it's like, oh man, what an image. And that's, that was the easiest place to ride. And then you had before and after the beach section because then you had had to get through the soft sand and how far could you ride into the soft sand because that's ideal and then yeah, most people had to get off and run. And uh, before and after you had the bridge, you know, the little, what are they called, like those causeway-type bridge?
1: Yeah, like a ramp-type setup that they had, yeah. Yeah,
0: that was at 25%. Oh, no. So after you've gone through the sand and ridden through the sand and run through the sand and your heart rate's about 290 then you've got to get up at like a 150-metre bridge at about 25%. Yeah. It's like, Jesus. It's
1: just a dagger to the heart, isn't it? It's, it's almost masochistic <laughs> the way they set that up. And I think if I remember back, there was almost a pivotal moment in that race when the two vans had been sort of slugging it out a little bit. And as that sand started to soften a little bit and the tracks were, were starting to get deeper, um, mm. Vanderpoel was still able to ride through that sand before the ramp. And there was a moment when Van Art for the first time in the race, had to get off, and that was almost, wow. okay, I think Van Der Poel is going to take this one out. Um, he just managed mm. to, to go further and further in front.
0: Yeah. And you remember, I reckon, um, about two or three three laps into, like, I don't know, what is it, seven or eight laps total, two or three laps in, Van Art was leading Van Der Poel, and he got a flat. And then he had to ride half a lap with a flat wheel, they said it at the time. I'm convinced that would have taken a fair bit of gas out of him yep. because he had to put so much, um, you know, power into riding it with a flat tyre. And then he sort of, he got back to within 30 or 30 or 40 seconds of Vanderbilt, but he couldn't get it back. So, like you say, that time when he couldn't ride through the sand, it may well have been influenced by the fact that he had to ride half a lap earlier on, you know, on a flat. So, yeah. it was a bit unlucky. It would have been interesting to see because before that, Van Art was sort of riding strongly and Van Der Poel was losing a little bit of time, in, even though it was in the early in the race. And we know that Van Art has cracked Van Der Poel in these champs before, mentally cracked him by just being out in front.
1: Yeah. So who yeah. knows
0: what, what might have happened.
1: Well, that's right. And it was almost like um... – Most people had, or most pundits had, Van Art sort of slight favourite for that world. I think just because, I mean, they they'd sort of shared a lot of the races in terms of head to heads for that for the season just gone. But yeah, yeah, there was a sort of a school of thought that perhaps the course might have suited Van Art better, just due to the sand Mm. and maybe that big ramp. Where on Mm. foot, Van Art was probably in all likelihood may have had Van der Poel's measure on foot. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't help bad luck sometimes, can you?
0: Yeah, yeah. So that was, that was um, yeah, like you say, that was a world's course worthy of a world's for sure. That was, a, that was a massive highlight, yeah, especially that image of those two riding along the beach with the waves overlapping their spokes, unbelievable.
1: Haven't they provided some unbelievable still shots? If you think mm. back to the worlds in Imola on the road when mm. um, mm. they were riding across that, um, that mm. ridge and um, mm. if you're a photographer in world cycling, you just follow those two in the races and you yeah. guarantee get some unbelievable Yeah,
0: source. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right, because they're going to be out on their own often.
1: What sort of list did you compile?
0: Yeah, I came up with five, just random items. Uh, my first one that I had was, I went back chronologically, the UAE Tour, Tour of the United Arab Emirates. Two things. One, watching that race through that desert terrain, it's visually spectacular. It's such a a different backdrop as a spectator. That was unreal, watching that. And it used to be, they kept saying it, it used to be that race used to be like a tune-up race. Have a few sprint stages, then they have one or two climbing stages. And ultimately, for most of the bunch, it's just getting your legs going. But now they're going hammer and tong right from day one. And then, in particular, most spectacular was a day, I think it might have been stage two, maybe three and they had crosswinds, and there was that image, the camera panned back, and there was an That's image. That's right. There was five echelons <laughs> down the road, and it was just spectacular, and it's spectacular. I keep saying this. It's spectacular for a spectator, and it is effing brutal if you're racing because that is the hardest racing you're um, probably doing.
1: Crosswinds are just shit on toast, aren't they? Let's be honest. <laughs> but that image, again. I I remember it vividly. I remember seeing it. And Mm. you could also get a sense of of the winds because the sand was being blown across (laughs) the road as well. It was was like the wind. You'd actually see the wind in a still shot. It was extraordinary.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that that was a a highlight for me, a visual highlight really. And look, the racing was great too because they had crosswinds there on a couple of those stages. And yeah, it was good. It's such a different race from a spectating point of view. So that was good.
1: Yeah, no, I've forgotten about that one actually, Scotty. I I want to uh, mention Van der Poel winning Strader Bianchi. So he's fresh off the cyclocross season, prime for the classics. Um, He launched his attack. Now there was, I think there was, in his group, I think there was Alaphilippe and Bernal. It was a pretty good selection anyway. Anyway, he launched his attack on the last gravel section and beat those two. On the steepest part, he just chose to go. and. I mean, once he puts the jet engines on, we know that no one can go with him. Um, even Van Art cracked that day just due to Cooling out of Gold, just absolutely torching the joint.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where um, Cancellara went to when he forced the, you know, the final selection. It's re- usually where Sagan can go with. He, Sagan usually doesn't have tack there, but he doesn't need to because he can take it to the last hill if he needs to. But, um, yeah, no, that was, that was impressive. And then in the little climb up into Siena, The final climb, he's got uh, what he had. Alaphilippe on his wheel, and he just punched away from. He made Alaphilippe look pedestrian, and that is Alaphilippe's go—a steep, short climb out of pre-fatigue. That's Alaphilippe's bread and butter, and he made Alaphilippe look. Yep, Yep. and he made him look like he was just an average rider. Yeah, yeah.
1: Now another part of that race, and we saw it in the Giro as well, is the landscape and terrain that they ride on there, and the countryside. Yeah. where you've ridden, Scotty. You've ridden. Yeah. Now, I get so jealous every time you mention this, but it's absolutely <laughs> breathtaking watching that vision.
0: Yeah. I haven't ridden the white roads, to be fair, but I've ridden around on the roads, around all those white roads. Uh, I have a friend a friend of ours, Darren Welsh, he runs cycle tours over there. He did it for like 15 years before COVID interrupted it, and he knows all those roads. But, yeah, they are amazing roads, oh, the whole place. Sienna, um, Sorry, I should say Tuscany is a special sort of a place and that region around Siena and there is amazing. Even the road riding on the sealed roads is incredible. It's it's an amazing sort of a place and it's amazing for for riding as well. And I have walked up that final climb into Siena. I've walked it up and it didn't actually, to be honest, it, it's steep, but it's not as steep as some of the steep climbs around my place. But then I haven't ridden 200 Ks beforehand, Ross. So you know, I'm thinking, yeah, it's not that bad. I could get up this, yeah, but yeah. after 200 is not so much. And then they go into the um, the Piazza, the Piazza del Campo or the Campo del Piazza, I think it's called. And that's actually a really small space. When they enter down into almost like the city square there, it's actually quite a small space. And there's this massive brick tower. And they also run a, a famous traditional horse race in there. And if you get a chance, it's called the Paleo, P-A-L-E-O, I think. And you, you look it up, and this horse race in this tiny little space, there's big stacks. So it's all happening in center. It's all yeah, happening. Yeah, yeah. They got two great races there.
1: We might have to have a half wheel and tour there one year, yeah. perhaps when Bloody it opens up through COVID. We'll, um, we'll run our own tours over there. I'd imagine.
0: Yeah, I'd say so. I think ASO will be reaching out to us. Oh, shit, yeah. power, shit, yeah. Yep. So the next two are based on the same person. The highlight for me was the arrival of Tom Pidcock. He's impressive, this guy. Here's what he did. He got fourth in the world champs in cyclocross, and he won a cyclocross, at least one cyclocross event in the season. And then at 50-odd Ks dripping wet, like he's about 54 Ks at weight, he goes in the Spring Classics. And the Spring Classics, are, you know, meant to be seen as this high power, big, big bodies, course. all this sort yeah. of stuff. What it's showing is you don't need big weight, you do need big power. And here's what he did in his first season of spring classics, Ross. Brabant's Peel, first. Amstel goal, second. Kerner Brussels Kerner, third. Strata Bianchi, slightly different, but um still a spring classic, fifth. And Flesh Wallon, sixth. All right, mm-hmm. So that's what he's done there in races where typically you're meant to have enough experience. But I guess if you've got huge legs and huge race smarts, then you maybe you can get by with less experience. Then um, after that, he thought, no, nah, well, now I'm going to go to Mount because I don't want to be a one-trick pony. <laughs> he goes to and he wins. He wins an event at Nova Mestro and then he, w- he comes second in the, the day before race. So they have a short track event and then the Olympic sort of uh, distance event. And he won and comes second. And who did he beat? Wonderboy. He beats Vanderpoel. Um, he beats Vanderpoel in the long race and he should have beaten Vanderpoel. He probably might have beaten Vanderpoel in the short race, but he couldn't get down into his lowest cog because he's uh, had a bit of a mechanical. So that is a highlight in itself, just the way he raced.
1: He's one to watch. Like, for an all-rounder, like, he's going to be a force to be reckoned with in stage races too, I reckon. Like yeah. He'll he'll, um, he'll have some opportunities there because, obviously, early in his career, it would be interesting to see which way they go with that, actually, because, I mean, clearly his cyclocross and classics riding seem to be able to marry up pretty closely mm-hmm. together. But, I mean, guys with that much talent, they're usually able to translate it into stage racing as well. So yeah. um, he broke his collarbone or something, didn't he, just recently?
0: Yeah, he did. He did. So it'll be interesting whether he gets back in time to go to the Olympics because yeah. um, that's his goal, yep. and that's also Vanderpol's goal, main goal of this season, winning the, yes. the mountain bike Olympic medal. My third of five highlights was another thing that involved Pidcock, and it was in the Amstel Gold Race, where it was Pidcock, Wout van Aert, and one other guy from Bora Hansgrohe. I can't remember his name. And they were the final, they'd forced the final selection with about 12 or 15 Ks to go. They've cut, gone up the Cowberg for the last time. And then they're sort of riding through more flatter terrain, you know, rolling hills flatter. And after Cowberg, like about a half a K after Cowberg, Peacock's gone on the front and he's got Van Art and some other, is it Kamnar or, oh, I can't remember, one of those guys from Bora Hansgaard with him, And Peacock's driving the pace, right? He's driving it unafraid, assertive, certainly not tired. And he looks back to Van Aert. He flicks his elbow and Van still on his wheel and Van Art doesn't come through. And then he looks back to Van Aert and goes, mate, you're coming through or not? Did you in <laughs> this race or not? And Van Art looks at him and he goes, hang on, mate, just give us a second. I was like to say, hang on, just give me a couple of seconds. Then eventually he came through. Yeah. And I'm like, that's what Van Art does to everyone else. And Peacock did it to him. Not in an arrogant way, but it's like, mate, the guy has got something.
1: Yeah, you picked that out beautifully. See, this is what this is what the listeners get. This is the stuff that the commentators don't reflect on and pick up on straight away. Scotty, you picked that out beautifully. I remember we spoke about that after it happened. Pivotal moment in terms of his standing in the peloton, I guess. You know, mm, to be able to yeah. to say, hey, mate, you know, I, I get it that you're a gun and you've got a lot of power, but I'm here, baby. Let's let's well, it's like,
0: yeah, it's like, yeah, exactly. I'm here. We've just broken, you know, we've just clipped off the front. are, are you gonna fucking drive this or not? You know, <laughs> are we are we doing this? Yeah. Are we doing this or not? Sort of thing. It was a bit like that. And so the week, you know, a few days before he'd won Brabant's pre in the sprint against Wout. And then that was the Amstel race where there was the photo finish of the photo finish of the photo yes. finish. Yes. And they gave it to Wout, but there's a I don't necessarily have an opinion, but Obviously, some people thought that maybe Pidcock had won that too. An element of but doubt, it, but yeah. we're talking about millimetres yeah. probably.
1: Yeah, great call. At this point of the year, particularly now the Grand Tours have started up, He's coming into his own and he's becoming a little bit like a guy you mentioned a little bit earlier, Fabian Cancellara. I actually um, texted you, I think it might have been last week sometime, saying this guy reminds me of Anthony Coutafidi when he played for Carlton in 2001, the year he took all before him, and he would play for Carlton, like playing games like he was playing against a bunch of school kids. So I'm talking Mm. about Filippo Garner, okay, the Mm. bloke who we dubbed gold member for good reason. Mm. Um, Mm. You know, everything's made of gold on him, including Mm. the the meat and two veg. This guy's an absolute beast, an Mm. absolute beast. He's imposing in size and on a TT bike. He's Mm. just a force. Mm. Now seemingly making his name as an enforcer when the... So when the brake needs to come down or he's, he actually turns into the chief climber, I think there was a couple of times in the Giro when Bernal just needed to pick the pace up a little bit on the climb, if you don't mind. So yeah. Garner just went to the front and just commanded that this is how fast we're going to go and everyone's got to try and keep up. And it was just <laughs> like, just come with me. Just come with me because I am the man. He is unbelievable.
0: Yeah, I mean – him and, say, Kwiatkowski, surely those two blokes have to be Ineos's most valuable riders because of what they can do for the specialists. You know, I know Gana is a specialist time trial, but, you know, what I mean? they're the guys who actually allow the banal or the race winners, they're the guys who allow it to happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because they're so either physically capable or, or Kwiatkowski's just so smart in the way he races and how he knows what to do. So... Yeah, they're the guys you shore up, I reckon, because, you know, you can find GC guys, but you can't find guys who can deliver those GC guys, so all the GC guys have to do is accelerate with a cane half to go. Oh,
1: absolutely. And, you know, I I mentioned Cancelara because it almost follows the same pattern, okay, Garner wins an early TT or a prologue, whatever it might be, gets in the yellow jersey or the leaders jersey of that particular tour, wears it for a little Mm. while, loses it to the GC boys, but still is a real presence in the bunch. I'm yeah. wondering now when he may be sort of introduced into sort of a classics in the mould of Cancelara because he's good enough. It, obviously, you have to change his tact a little bit in terms of the things that he aims for in the season, but mm. um, yeah. he, he reeks of a classics rider.
0: Yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, like you say, he, need, he would need to shift his goals, and obviously this year his goals are the Olympics amongst other things. Because don't forget, he's going to ride road and track at these Olympics. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> so that, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, because he can. He's good enough. So I reckon with the classics, I don't know a lot about him in terms of what he came up doing. But I wonder if in the classics, he might have to develop his tactical acumen that little bit.
1: Because
0: mm. if he's come off the track in pursuit, which is just about horsepower, and now he's doing, he's doing good jobs there now, but again, it it's utilizing his horsepower. So I wonder if he has the, I don't know, he might have them right now, uh, the race smarts, you know, in those classics, yeah. cause you do need to, yeah, you need to know, you need to be smart as well. So I'm not saying he can't do it, but I, and I'm not saying he doesn't have it already, but yeah, I reckon it'd be awesome. It'd be great. And. Maybe when he backs off the track, maybe, maybe that's when he starts yeah. focusing on the on the classics. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'd love to
1: see it. I'd love to Wouldn't see it. Wouldn't it be
0: amazing? There was <laughs> no, I think it was like the second last Roubaix that Cancellara did and he had um, you know, he was in a group of like ten and it was like the second last sector and he just rode them off his wheel. And I was just <laughs> like I said to I think I was watching it with my wife or something, she was paying a little bit of attention. I said, just watch, just strap in here because he's a go, about to go ballistic. <laughs> and by the end of the sector, there was no one there. <laughs>
1: Afterburners. Oh,
0: Matthew Vanderpoel and Casper Asgreen, tour of Flanders. Van Der Poel.
1: Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. I
0: yeah, I think that was a great moment, you know, because those two guys got to the finish. And Vanderpoel, you could see he you know in the last few k's I know he can go deep and he's got a massive engine and all that but he did he did run himself fairly ragged and he cracked you know as in he got to the sprint and he didn't have any more gas but I still reckon I reckon he ah uh, if I was him I reckon I'd be kicking myself to not beat Asgreen but having said that Asgreen's no deal. He's a massive engine. He doesn't get tired at the end of big races. So the percentage of his sprint, you know, is going to be there for him. But I just felt like Van Der Poel might, if he might have been just a little bit, I don't know, cleverer with his energy in the last 20 Ks, you know, this is me just wondering. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Um, you think
1: he feels compelled sometimes to to live up to that persona of the the man who's got to drive it. I'm the man who's got to drive it. More often than not, it's because he can. But On the odd occasion, it may get him into trouble, which this may have been one, as you're alluding to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what he, Yeah, obviously with his personality and that, but I do know he likes to take control of things. So maybe that's the same version of what you've just said. But here's what I know in my time working with athletes is that when athletes come up with a particular strength, like a real strength in their performance, they often, they learn to use it, you know. So his strength, is ability to just, you know, he can ride 100Ks fast on on his own if he needs to, and then he can also punch up steep hills and he can also win sprints, right? So physically, he's a talented, talented physical athlete. And when you're super talented, you learn to use that and you over-leverage it. And he's already, he can already bully the shit out of most of the peloton with his physicality right now, right? So, with the classics and when he's maybe he's getting a little bit tired through the classic season, he's come off the cyclocross, blah, 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 or he's not having the perfect day or whatever, then you've got to use other tricks. You've got to find other ways to get it done. And I just wonder because he's been so good physically for so long and he's won it, he pretty much won at will just because most of it, he's so physically better than it, than everyone else then maybe his tactics haven't developed and haven't needed to develop. Here's my example, right? It's like Roger Federer for years played Nadal, right? And yet Nadal – and Roger Federer won everything. And yet Nadal nearly always beat Roger Federer in major finals. And it's like the one person he needed to practice against to get that last little better, Federer couldn't because he only met Nadal in the finals. He didn't get yeah. practice. So – up until that point, in most of his games, he never had to go as deep as he had to go against Nadal. And I just wonder if this similar could be a case for van der Like, it might be hard for him to learn the tactical skill, that little bit more subtlety, because he's been so good for so long using that one weapon of, like you say, he's one wood. Now, here's the thing. He's going in the Tour de France coming up. You know, he just wants to target a stage or two. He won't do the whole Tour de France because he needs to recover for the Olympics, for the mountain bike. So he's going to be targeting stages, right? So here's the thing. As you know, it's not as easy targeting a one stage in a Tour de France because there's so much more complexity because there's so many more games happening all at once. A whole lot of teams are doing different things. So he might not even be let go in a break. Yeah. Yeah. And he's not going to hang around waiting for a bunch sprint. He's not going to do that, right? Because he's going to be feeling like this is too easy. I need to exercise my legs. So this is where it'll be fascinating to see if he is able to get it into a situation where he can just bully the shit out of other riders in a break or if he can use some tactical skill to somehow make it work in the Tour de France because there's there's about five games being played at once in every stage of the Tour. So there you go.
1: Yeah, now the next phase of his development perhaps because he's still only young, so he's still learning the craft a little bit, I guess. Um, Yeah. But you're right, it's a completely different beast, isn't it? You know, classics rider to the Grand Tour, particularly Tour of France. And and
0: that's not me criticising him. It's more just saying, I wonder where that tactical stuff is at. Like, it'd be great to speak to his DSs and, and see how they felt about his tactical stuff. And it's not saying that he hasn't been good or anything, and it's not saying that what he's doing is not working, but it's more like, what about when you come up against three other riders and they're just as strong as you on that day? Mm. What What do you do then? Mm. You know.
1: Yeah. So yeah, mate. We focused a little bit on the classics so far because they're good. They're always good. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, they gave us a fair bit this year. I want to go back to the age. Best on the age, the best climber in the world tour at the moment is Pagacha. Yep. and he actually won this classic but mm. he won it in a sprint he won it mm. in a five up sprint so he out sprinted alpha and gadu you know i think the final group broke it was about 13 14 15k something like that from the end so i mean just to reflect on that i realized it's a climbing classic but i mean for the guy to have that string to his bow and i think he just timed his sprint to perfection come over the top of alpha Philippe and yeah. Um. You know, to take that in as the best climber in the world can also sprint and win a win a classic in that fashion. This guy is superstar.
0: Yeah. Bloody oath. Uh, um. I think the last guy to win the Tour in Liège was um Merckx. I think that's what they said. Yeah. I think you're right. Yep. Yeah. And he was also remember last year when we reviewed Tour de France when Pagetche won the yellow, the white two stages the time trial you know like he just he cleaned up mm. again the last person to do that was Merckx as well so yeah. i'm not saying he's not going to win as many races as Merckx. Merckx won 525 races <laughs> but um he's a deal yeah. and he knows how to race there's what that's what i'm hearing what you said ross you know he's more than just a watts per kilo engine yeah. he knows how to race yeah. and um he doesn't shy away from race scenarios and like to beat alpha at the end of a hard rate that's a good effort And also. Valverde was in that group now he's 41 but he's still not slow in those sort of scenarios of those sort of sprints yeah Valverde maybe might have I don't know if he made a mistake going to the front he sort of let out that sprint I'm not sure if that was deliberate by him or he just was a bit tired and he all of a sudden made an error in judgment I don't know yeah but anyway Pagacha beat him as well
1: yeah He's putting together quite a good record and I'm really looking forward to seeing him defend his title in France this yeah. year. I reckon it's going to be super.
0: Yeah. Ding dong. My last highlight uh, was a more of a personal one. Uh, it was the Giro and the stage where, not necessarily the Zoncolan stage, which that was great too, but where they went into the Dolomites uh, because I've ridden around there and they went up Paso Gardena and they've called that because it's like um, the, the mountains like really green so it's like a garden. Uh, they call Passo Paso Gardena and then and Paso Jiao. But I, don't, I think they cut out the Gardena, didn't they? Because that day they had…
1: Cut that stage sp- short, didn't
0: they? They had filthy weather. It was yeah. horrid weather. And then they went up Paso Jiao, which I've ridden up too. So that was a highlight for me, you know, just sort of reminiscing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would It'd almost be surreal to see it on television, sweetie, knowing that you've ridden the same roads and just an epic thing to see come to life again.
0: Well, yeah, and because these guys are amazing and I am not amazing on a bike. No,
1: they... hang on, hang on. Hang on. <laughs> this is This is our podcast. We can say whatever
0: the hell we want. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we I'm a life. hero for even getting out there and I'm a hero for <laughs> going up the jowl. But, yeah, they're pedalling up the jowl. Like, I don't know what their cadence were. I'm just going to assume it was like 80, 85, 90, something, just doing that. And when I went up the jaw, my cadence was 55. It was like tick, <laughs> tock, tick, <laughs> tick, tick, and with the jow, see, I did it as part of, Ross, as a part of a bigger event called the Maratona de Dolomites. So that's a Bortif ride, if you like. And um, the stats are it's 142 k's. There's seven classified climbs, 4,200 metres vert, right? And a lot of it, some of it's out at altitude as well. So it's you're starting at 1,600 metres. So it's a big day f- uh, for anyone. Um, t- 10,000 people do this event every year. So it's huge, right? Anyway, so I get to the um, – actually, I'll tell you a quick story. So I'm coming off the Sella Ronda, which is a loop of mountain passes, and then we're descending down in this valley, and we're flying through little – because closed roads. You're flying through these little villages, just like in the Tour de France where, like, all the roads are shut. And yeah. You're flying through villages. And, <laughs> you know, for, like, 20Ks, We're sort of, you know, it's like descending a, a 2 to 3%. And there's this big bloke come past me, like a Belgi grinder, and he had two others with him. So I just jumped on the back of them. that was fucking unreal. And then started going up, right? We started climbing up, and I'm like, okay, okay, this is it, the jowl. So this is like six and a half hours in. Yeah. And it's like, okay, this is the jowl, focus. And then I'm, I'm sort of after about a K and a half, I'm riding around going, oh, I feel pretty good. This is not too bad. I mean, they said it was um, meant to be steep. Like the jowl's like 10Ks at 10%. So I'm going up, and all of a sudden hear the, this band. There was this band that perched up, and they would giving you a little G-ups as you're riding past. And I'm like, oh, it feels pretty good. My moon's pretty good. And I'm like, the jowl. Fuck, fucking – because Ivan Basso, this is what Darren told me, and I later found this quote. He called the jowl, riding up the jaw a slap in the face. That's what he called it. <laughs> so I'm like, ah, oh, the jowl. The jaw's not that bad. Then after about two K's of climbing, just started descending. And I'm like, oh fuck. <laughs> early. Really early. So then you turn you turn left onto the where we came from. We can't turn left into the jaw, and it instantly is steep, like 10 or 12%. And this is green either side of this narrow road. And all of a sudden the noise went quiet. No one was talking. Everyone was just concentrating. Mm-hmm. And then in the first, I don't know, a K or two, there's these little creek crossings. And they're twenty meters long. Each one of these bridges—they're the only change in gradient for the whole climb of ten k's—is these five by twenty meter bridges. Mm. And how slow do you reckon I rode over those Just bridges? Just gold. I took—I <laughs> soaked them up like nothing else. Yeah, and so then I'm riding up, and it's you know the cadence tick, up. and this at this stage we're deep into this ride, and so the people, some people were pulling over to have a rest, um, you know, because we're. It's amateur. Some people were pulling over to have rest. Some people were pulling over to fill up bottles. And I did use that to spur myself on. I said, well, I'm not pulling over. Yeah. I'm not pulling over. And I was actually saying to myself, my self-talk was, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm better than you. Just to spur myself <laughs> on, right? Yeah, yeah. And meet them in the street. I'm not saying I'm better than them. But on that day, that moment, I needed to motivate. And then you get to the top and you can see the top of the, the pass where there's a time check. A time cut. And I was about a K and a half away and all of a sudden it got hard. It's like, oh, why is this so fucking hard? Like way harder than normal, right? And I was like, I was sort of losing my ability to just create that space between the challenge and the discomfort of it and just my awareness, you know, just that to observe yourself and just kind of, okay, what can I do? do?" Yeah. I lost that ability. And also again, I realized it was the altitude that got me. And just, I was actually about to pull the pin and just pull over on the side of the road and just have a bit of a break. And just as I was about to do that, another rider from our group that we're doing it, I was touring with, he came up on me. He, he rode up because he was a bit lighter than me. Yeah. A bit Sorry, he was just a bit better climbing than me. And so um, he goes, come on, Scotty, we'll do it together. And I'm like, oh, that was gold. And mm-hmm. so we got to the top. We made the time cut. There was two time cuts you have to make to be able to finish the whole ride. And then there's another 50 Ks and two more climbs after that. Got to the top, stuffed myself with food, all sorts of different random food, a mm. lot of drink, a lot of Coca-Cola, everything. And then had a rest, took a photo, and then boom, then we descended 25k oh, uh, down the descent. And then glorious. we went up, then we went up two more climbs yep. after that. Uh, so there's my epic story about the jowl. Oh, that's
1: mouthwatering. I've seen some of the photos. Yeah. 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 Very, very envious
0: the top of the jow is, is. I mean, the dolomites are amazing, they can't be all understated. The rock formations they're just out of this world, yeah. And at the top of the jow, there's this rock formation, this vertical rock face, and it just goes up like about 800 meters straight up. It's just mm. like it's like a shard of rock, a giant shard of rock that's just been dropped into the Got earth. The sky.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, it's pretty spectacular that whole region. So, if you ever if anyone ever gets a chance to ride in the dolomites. Then just take it or even just go there and have a look. And we've actually got a listener, haven't we, from um, the Stelvio, Stelvio Pass, which is, yes. in, which is in that Dol- Dolomites region.
1: Yes, hello, Stelvio the Stelvio man on mean. Instagram. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: I never get sick of his videos, oh, I get no. envious and I would yes. say, just leave us alone with us, stop bloody torturing us. But. Yeah. Spectacular. Yeah, he is. I, I think
1: there's a, an element of him just rubbing it in a bit. Like it's <laughs> he'll he just post something and it's like, oh, I want to watch, but I don't. No.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Mate, thanks for sharing that story. That's a bloody piss up. Oh, as envious yeah. it, as it does make me. My last one was the Giro <laughs> as well. Yeah. And it does it every year. I, and I know we get wound up about the tour, and we've spoken about this. The Giro's just got something special about it. It's just so pure. Oh, it's got everything, like the weather, the scenery, the racing is shit hot, the climbing, and oh, mate, it's it's unbelievable. And this year, we even had guys with chainsaws running along, <laughs> running along riders as they're trying to climb up the dolomites. If you don't mind, Scotty.
0: Oh my god! That, like, we we had a bit. We had a bit of um. <laughs> <laughs> So it's like we went back and forward with text messages on this. Like, I've got to be honest, on one hand, it's really funny. It's great. And on the other hand, it's totally fucked. Like, yeah. it's seriously fucked and bad spectating. So it's like it depends on what angle you look at. Because there was a few days later, there was another guy on top of a car with a chainsaw who's was revving it, but he didn't have he had, didn't have the blade in or anything like that. He was just revving the engine. So with your chainsaw like, there's your copycat. <laughs> Mate, what's the next? You know, what's the, the next time they have someone they're shooting their guns in the sky, like in Mexico? Is it yeah. like the um, thin end of the wedge? You know, the escalation factor, the copycat factor. Yeah, that's what, from the serious point yeah, of view.
1: Yeah, what can we do next? It could be um, pepper spray or something along those hmm. lines. Um,
0: like you know, they started lighting flares on the um, on the Chippersa yeah. and Milan Sodremo. So what are they going to do next time? Like, oh, I'm just going to let off a little bomb, just create a little <laughs> crater here on the side of the road. It, it won't, you know, the shrapnels do, it's only got a five-metre blast radius. It's okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. Next time they, they do outdoors on Dutch Corner, um, we've actually got a hand grenade ready for this year. It's going to be <laughs> awesome. You're going to love
0: it. <laughs> and when, when, it, when it blows up, it sprays uh, orange shrapnel, you know, the brilliant orange. But also, like, it's hard enough for these riders they are going up the climbs and, you know, when they go up to West and there's just a million people on the mountain, there's smoke and they can't see, and they've got Muppets getting in the way increasingly. Increasingly, the spectators are, want to be on telly yeah. and make it about them rather than actually get really um, connected to the riders and sort of rev up the riders and accelerate the riders. Increasingly, it's more about, look at me, look at me, yeah. or what can I do that my mates will see? But those guys, when those chainsaws came out and they're got those guys are getting up near the top of that climb, like that would be the worst thing in the world for them. Like oh. they're trying to stay focused and then there's a potential, what they could perceive as a potential death threat yeah. coming at them. Yeah. Like, hang on, my heart rate's pinned at 190. These guys are coming. Are they really going to, what, what's going on here? And I've got to try and race here. Like, fuck off. Yeah. Come on.
1: It beggars belief. I don't mind the running up next to the riders, provided they're two to three metres away from them. Like, the guys who run right next to them and yell in their ear, I don't know how they don't just give them a swift jab to the beak.
0: Remember Miguel Anga Lopez, Superman Lopez? I think it might have been in the Giro two years ago, maybe one year ago, and that spectator pushed him and pushed him off the bike, and so Lopez gave him a whack for his troubles. (laughs) I'm like, fuck when Lopez hit the spectator, everyone was like, "Thank God you did yeah. that. Thank you for doing that." You know, yeah. maybe I know the mood, like Dutch Corner on up to Western. I know it gets really festive, and so they're just at this ultra level of arousal and excitement. Mm. So you know, maybe they lose their heads a bit, but at the same time, leave your chainsaws at home for fuck's yeah. sake.
1: Look, Scotty, we have given some pretty awesome reflections there on uh, what we've seen so far. It takes you back to. I mean, some of those seem like so long ago, but um, gee, it's great to back on them and just remember how awesome they were, those highlights. Yeah.
0: Yeah, So we should do a little Instagram post inviting other people to put their highlights underneath, you know what I mean? Yes. Because obviously there's a billion things we would miss, so it'd be great to see what other people reckon. Yeah.
1: We'd love to hear a bit of feedback. What we're going to do, we're going to wrap this one up now. It's been great to go over these things, mate. We've got a little bit of a special one coming up in our next episode. We're going to actually look back on a couple of things we've spoken about previous, and it revolves around some of the, so let's say some of the more experienced riders in the peloton right now. And it's a reasonably topical thing because a couple of them have been in the mix in races recently. So it'll be good to go back on some of those things that we spoke about and see where it's at. So I reckon we rendezvous at a later date. What do you think?
0: Yep. Can't wait, mate. (laughs)